morning. It's one of the reasons we uh, have a single service this morning. And I want to, as, as you regain your seat, I want to beg your indulgence for a few minutes. I'm going to sit with my back to you because you are not the primary recipients of this story, okay? Besides, they're better looking anyway, okay? So, this story, anybody heard of the character in the Bible named Daniel? When, no, okay. Anybody who has heard of him... Can you think of any animals that you associate with Daniel? Ooh, you could hear a pin drop. Sometimes we talk about Daniel and the lion's den. But today we're going to talk about a much stranger topic. It's Daniel and the veggies. It's even more scary than lions, isn't it? Anybody love veggies? All right. Is that true? What's your favorite veggie? Carrots, okay. That's legit. Peppers, all right. You are a person after my own heart. How about you guys? Carrots. Carrots and broccoli. All right, we're branching out. Okay, well, let's start our story. All right, I don't know if you can tell what this picture is. It's Jerusalem. When Babylon's army captured Jerusalem, they took the strongest, smartest, most handsome young men. <laughs> These would learn a new language and train for new work. They would eat the king's food, which was quite a nice perk. What if you guys all got new Babylonian names? You went from Daniel to Belteshazzar. Would he be the same? Daniel took his new name. He was willing to learn. But the king's table meat gave him cause for concern. Daniel was a Hebrew, a follower of God, who had made special food rules that we would find odd. Dan ate no cheeseburgers. He wouldn't eat bacon. To stand before God, these he would not partake in. Good luck reading that one. Dan told his new trainers, I don't want to riot, but could my friends and I have an all-veggie diet? Would you want all veggies? Their boss was suspicious. He knew the king's table was highly nutritious. He knew, too, the king would think this plan was silly. If you don't look your best, my king will kill me. That's not so good. Dan said, for 10 days, give us veggies and water and see if we don't look both healthier and hotter. And after 10 days, they were healthiest and best. And as years went past, they were better than the rest. For God gave them health, but also understanding. They faithfully loved him. He made them outstanding. Finally presented for the king's close observance, 
he found them the smartest and wisest of servants. Veggies didn't make them the king's secretaries. They did what God said, even when it was scary. Now, I hope you eat your veggies in 2018, but I pray you'll love God most, whatever your cuisine. All right, that's the end of our story, but before I give you your veggies, which won't be veggies, I have two questions for you. First is, why did Dan eat only veggies? Yeah. Because he knew it was healthy. Okay. A lot of people say that. Okay. He wanted to follow God and be healthy. Yep. Daniel said, God doesn't want me to eat the kinds of things that are on the king's table, like ham sandwiches with cheese, even though that sounds kind of better than okra. All right. Next question. Last question. What made Dan so healthy and smart? Yeah. Okay, so the king's food was gross, and Daniel said, I want the veggies that God's going to give me. Is that about right? Okay. Will we accept that answer? Fantastic. Very well done. Uh, This is my son who years ago would sit on the steps like this, but now he's here to give you fruit snacks. So parents are guardians if fruit snacks are a problem. Please whisk them away from your child if you get the chance. All right, why don't you go on back to your seat, but please pass by Calvin first and get fruit snacks. Everybody up. (laughs) All right, and while we get that sorted... Thank you. Why don't you keep a hold on that bag in case you need them later? Okay, that's fun. I'm not Aaron Riley, but that's fun. All right, I have something. Uh, this, this slide, if, if that's not sobering for you, then you're not paying attention. And I realize that you can't see what all the little colors code out to. And that's not really the point. Because the the critical information on this chart, it's called a donut chart. I've enjoyed a few too many of those this year. 9.2% of people who make New Year's resolution report success. I've seen studies anywhere from 7 to 10. This particular uh, set of statistics said 9.2. And, and there are things on here. The big blue line, if you can see it, is weight-related or eating. Um, this cummerbund used to fit. Uh, next biggest one is self-improvement. There's things like better finances, to quit smoking, do exciting things, bucket list things. 
So it's this time of year that people are, are kind of gearing up for, what am I going to do to change things? How am I going to make things better? And the sobering reality that we faced is, we stink at doing this. Change is hard. 9.2%. You know, that's, that's not even an F minus. It's it, on, on down, down towards zero. And uh, this isn't a new problem. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, probably North America's greatest theologian ever, wrote in the 18th century, there is no dependence on myself. His point is, the, the problem is that I'm not constant. So my resolution today looks different tomorrow. He says our resolutions may be at the highest one day, and yet the next day we may be in a miserable, dead condition, not at all like the same person who made that resolution. It is to no purpose to resolve except we depend on the grace of God. This is true, but it's difficult to take that and walk away and go, well, then here's what I'm going to do, right? Any more than it's easy to listen to the story of Daniel plucked out of his home country, his hometown, his home people, taken to a new place, a new job, new training, new language, new custom, new literature. Everything changes for him. And the one thing that he says, I can't change, that's his, his resolution. And so I want to look at Daniel's resolution, and then I want to look at how Paul talks about resolving, because I think what we need, Church of the Valley, is fruitful resolution. And so the two texts this morning are Daniel 1, 8 through 20, and I've, I've mostly covered that as much as I'm going to with maybe a few more remarks. And 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 and 12. All right. Let's go back to Daniel for a moment, because anytime we use language that isn't customary today, I think we have to think a little harder. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. When was the last time you used the word defile in casual conversation? I'm thinking the last time that I heard it outside of a church or school context was... Uh, there's a character in Ghostbusters who's the, the defiler, and uh, that's starting to get quite, quite a while ago, if I may say so. So what, what is Daniel trying to avoid? Defiling in his culture is God has taught, in order to be in my presence and worship me, you have to be clean. And defilement is the process of becoming unclean. And there was a whole laundry list of ways in which you could do that, including scarfing bacon, which God said, you're my people, and guess what? Bacon's not for you. Personally, I am grateful to live in the grace of Christ and be able to eat bacon. And you need not join me in that endeavor if you prefer not to. But Daniel is constrained, and he says... Okay, look, there's something about the food on the king's table that isn't okay. What's interesting to me, I made the mistake of doing a Google search on Daniel and vegetables, and I came up with a thing that I honestly had no idea existed, which is the Daniel diet. Okay, please forgive me if I'm about to steamroller your 
hobby horse, but this is the dumbest thing I have heard in a long time. The point of the story of Daniel and the vegetables is not that a diet of vegetables is cleansing and healthful and will make you better than everyone else. The trainer said, are you kidding? The king's going to kill me if you eat that stuff because you're not going to be healthy like the people who eat at my training table. It's not a natural consequence, he says. So then what is the point? The point is that God said, Daniel wants to be in relationship with me so much that while he's willing to accept all this change, that thing that's going to separate us, he's going to cling to not doing it. And he takes that action of, please, can I have vegetables? Please, can we try for 10 days? Test for yourself and see what happens. And God himself enters that situation. So if we think about how Daniel's resolution works, he starts with a godly passion. What is Daniel's godly passion? I want to be in the presence of God. I don't want to be separated from him. And then he moves from that, that passion. How, how, can I, how can I do my best to ensure that? And he makes a faithful resolution. What's Daniel's resolution? I'm not going to eat that stuff that I know is going to make me unclean. Now, the text doesn't tell us why it would make him unclean. So I'm, I've been talking about pork products, but it could equally be that the, the people first offered these to idols, and so the food was considered unclean that way. There are lots of different ways in which that food could have been not okay for Daniel to eat because it would taint his relationship with God. It's interesting that the writer doesn't explain that explicitly. It's like the writer knows all this time later, that rule isn't going to apply to us, and yet the principle remains. Daniel's faithful resolution is, I'm going to do what I can to stay connected with God because that, that passion for that relationship is what I want to survive in the midst of all this turmoil. And the outcome, of course, is that God intervenes and he changes everything. It's not his special diet. And I've got no problems with you eating vegetables and water. Be, be smart about what vegetables and how much and when, but that's, that's fine. I am also not advocating my too many donuts diet, okay? So this isn't diet, diet Sunday. This is, let's talk about what makes a resolution fruitful. All right. That's Daniel. And you go, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have a, a story, but is there a New Testament teaching about it? Yeah, it's kind of all over. But, but I picked one because it's, it's a pretty compact couple of verses, and so we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 11 and 12. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. King Jesus King, as we say sometimes. God, that's our primary text today. 
And I pray that as we approach it, that you would allow us to approach you and that you would draw near to us and that you would help us to see how we need to look at our lives and our community differently than we do today in 2018. In Christ's name, amen. All right, the first thing I want to say about this is when you start a text, when somebody gets up here and the first phrase in the text is with this in mind, then bing, question mark goes on over your head, right? What came before? With what in mind? And the beauty of where this verse lies is it's really early in one of Paul's letters. Paul is one of these, he's not quite stream of consciousness, but it, sometimes he stumbles over 15 different tangents, which is one of the reasons I like him. He talks like I do. But what he's saying we should keep in mind, it's not very good news. If we look at what comes before, he's talking to people who are being persecuted because they are followers of Christ. And we don't experience that like they did. We have a government that has more restraint than theirs do. We live in a world that has more peace than theirs did. But they're facing individual severe persecution and corporate together persecution. And Paul is reassuring him. He says, all of this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On that day, he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. And you want to talk about a little passage that'll take the air right out of a room? That's that passage in our context. Nobody wants to talk about how high the stakes are. We would much rather talk about how much we'd like to quit smoking. And by all means, if you want to quit smoking, I'm for it. But I'm saying what Paul is talking about in the verses that I read is way bigger than anything that was on that list of resolutions with the donut chart. So let's just gird up our minds with we are talking eternal consequences. We are talking the meaning of life. We are talking everything we have is in the middle of the table relying on this hand. Now let's talk about what resolutions are. So what does, what does Paul say? He has, he has five phrases here. We constantly pray for you. God may make you worthy of his calling. By his power, he may bring to fruition. And what's he going to bring to fruition? Two things. Every desire for goodness, every deed prompted by faith. What's interesting about this list is when I think of a resolution, I think of my putting down the second donut, or ideally the first, right? I, I'm responsible for that. If I were a, uh, like, 
Ulysses Grant's a chain smoker of cigars, as many as 20 a day for much of his career, apparently. Put down that first cigar, right? It's, it's up to me. But let's look at what we do versus what God does in Paul's economy. He says, we constantly pray for you. And that's the only thing in his whole laundry list that anybody has any control over here. It's kind of a counter-resolution, isn't it? What, what, I'm supposed to sit there and pray? Well, here's, here's the thing. If, if we look at that list of, of what we do and what God does, what are we praying for? We're praying that God will move. We're praying that God will move in us. We're praying that God will move in our loved ones. We're praying that God will move in Church of the Valley. And that kind of resolution is going to be the kind of resolution that instead of relying on my strength and, and as John Edwards was saying, well, I'm, I'm highly resolved today and tomorrow not so much. The candied bacon is really going to be appealing to me tomorrow. But God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you say, okay, Mike, um, it's, it's easy to say constantly pray, but if that's my resolution, then I've already failed because, oh, oh, I was just not praying. Oh, I did it again. I'm not praying. Oh, no, not again. It, right? The trouble, the trouble with the stuff that we do take literally and the stuff that we don't take literally is usually we're wrong. So just like the people who looked at the story of Daniel and didn't go, whoa, God made a way for Daniel to be a leader of the people, not just in the way that the Babylonians intended, sort of a cultural ambassador. He knows our language. He knows our culture. He's in charge of a bunch of stuff. And so you can be like him, and we're going to assimilate you in. Yeah, that happened. But what else also happened? Daniel retained his relationship with God and became an example in that way. An example not only to his contemporaries, but I get to read this book again today and I get to be inspired by Daniel, I get to be amazed by Daniel, but most of all, I get to enjoy the fact that Daniel is pointing to God and pointing me to God. So if I think about constantly praying, I can't be thinking, I gotta do better. If that is your takeaway today, hopefully your neighbor will nudge you and say, that's not your takeaway today. Doing better is not ever what God is looking for from you. Unfortunately, what God is looking for from you and from me is a way bigger deal. It's pushing all the chips in. I'm yours. I'll change as circumstances dictate. The thing that's non-negotiable is I love you and I want to be with you. And I'm amazed that you, the God of the universe, want to be with me. And that you don't accept me because I'm awesome. You make me awesome by the power of your son, who is awesome. Augustine had, had a thing to say about constant prayer. He said, it's your heart's desire that is your prayer. If your desire continues uninterrupted, your prayer continues also. So suddenly, instead of, 
I'm thinking about the practice of constant prayer, which can have a place. It's good to be aware, wow, it's been a day since I prayed. Hey, I haven't prayed for any of the people who annoy me. Hey, I haven't prayed for any of the people that I love. Hey, the character that I'm revealing today really isn't very Christ-like. All of those might be warning signs, alerts, diagnostics saying, there's more. There's more. I have more for you, and I have more for your community. Instead, it's a redirection of what is my passion. And if you say dressage horses are my passion, okay, I'm going to scratch my head a little bit about that, but I'm also going to say, man, you're missing the biggest thing there is. Anybody know what a dressage horse is, by the way? Okay, I got one hand. So, all right, bad example, or maybe it's a good example. Nice and obscure. All right, so, so if, if my attitude is allowing my passion for God to become the thing that defines me, whatever my context is, whatever changes happen, new city, new job, new whatever, then what, what's God going to do? The first thing is Paul's praying that they be made worthy of God's calling. Now, the last one, I used a little symbol that, that, you know, it's on repeat. This one's more like a backup symbol. And the reason that I'm doing that is because we throw around the word repentance a lot. And it's another word that you just, it doesn't come up in everyday contexts, right? I, I've never said to my boss, you know, I really repent of the way that I visualized that last set of data. Because repent has kind of a strange, specific meaning. It means I was going this way, and now I'm going to go this way. It means I turn from whatever that was, and I'm going in a new direction. And in this context, Paul is saying, God has a calling that's way bigger than you and I tend to realize. It's not where we live. We live in, you know... Yeah, I'm a Ford truck guy. No, I'm a Chevy guy. No, I'm a Dodge guy. Oh, Niners, Raiders, whatever your team is. You know, as long as it's not the Steelers or, I don't know, the Red Sox. I just had to make Tim feel welcome uh, not being here. So we identify ourselves in ways that, that really don't, do anybody any good. We're happy to divide over some colorful spandex clothing that people wear on different fields and courts. And it doesn't actually unite us in a way that's meaningful. And yet that's what God has called us to, is a ministry of reconciliation, not only of ourselves to him through the power of Christ, but also one another to each other our community to know God, we've got a huge set of things that God's calling us to. But oftentimes it feels like we'd much rather debate which diet is better. And I think that's because we lose track of the, the next thing, which is that God's power makes us fruitful. Uh, so often 
we expect people to be competent in what they do in ministry. And I, I, I'd like to go on record, I think that's a good thing. But what we look for is competence. We don't look necessarily for fruit. What does fruit look like? Fruit is something that God produces in a life that has eternal value. D.L. Moody said something uh, interesting. There's a little bit of the quote on, on a slide. I'm going to read the whole thing for you. How sad the experience of that worker who sees others greatly used in such a movement. Um, he's talking about revivals. And himself passed by. Other fields rejoicing with the joy of harvest while his lies barren and unfruitful. It need not be so. Let us break up our fallow ground, seek a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit, and then move forward expecting great things of God. Daniel went to the Babylonian trainer and said, I expect great things to happen in the 10 days that I'm on this nutty diet. He didn't use those words, but that's what his actions said. He said, God is going to intervene in my personal history in a way that you're going to be able to see and feel my skin tone is going to be awesome. And we just got through the season of the incarnation of Christ. And the, you know, the Orthodox Church is still, still celebrating it. And it's going to go on for a little bit longer. And let's not forget that God is a God of intervening in history in ways that can be seen and felt and whose repercussions continue. But if we're squabbling about diets, God help us. God help us. All right. Why is God's power going to make us fruitful? Well, there are a couple of ways in which this comes into play. The first one is internal. Um, he gives us a desire for goodness. In other places, Paul talks about how we didn't have godly desires before Christ came into our lives and the Holy Spirit transformed who we are. But now, things are different. And I have, this is the longest quote I have this morning, um, and I'm not sure how to help you take it all in. Um, I, I'm going to give you a little chunk but, but I really want you to think about what Tim Keller is saying in this quote. He was preaching on John 15 about the, the fruit, um, vines and branches. He says, practically speaking, you are living with things in your life, and I'll just say, and I am in my life, that shouldn't, you shouldn't have to live with because you're, you've given up trying to change them. There are things in your life that are hurting you, that are bothering you, that are creating misery and shame, and in some cases, in the lives of the other people around you. You've given up on yourself. Jesus says in John 15, if you abide in me, whatever you ask for, I'll give it to you. He says, I don't believe Jesus is giving some teaching on prayer in general. He's talking about this specific idea, I am the vine and you are the branches. In me you will bear fruit. And then he says, ask whatever you want. He says, I think he's talking about fruit. 
I think he's trying to say, and please hear me, Church of the Valley, this morning, do you find you're a despairing person and you want joy? Do you find you're a hard-hearted person and you want tenderness? Do you find you're an unforgiving person and you want to be a forgiving person? Do you find you're an anxious person and you want to have peace? He says, ask for it. It's coming. I am the vine. You are the branches. My roots are in the very lifeblood of God. And if you're united with me, you can have any of these character qualities. Just ask for them. Those are good desires. And if out of a focus on who God is and the generosity that comes out of that, I become a wiser manager of money because I want to use it in a way that's going to be God-honoring, fantastic. If addressing the fact that I live in anxiety in a lot of ways by going to the source of peace means that my family gets to live around me uh, more peaceably and happily, that's a good thing too. But, but those latter things start with my wanting the good things that God gives. All right, then the, the fifth item um, and the second way in which God's power makes us fruitful is in our faithful deeds. Let's just jump to the Charles Spurgeon quote. He says, I wish there were no resolutions in religion. A resolution to repent, in other words, I will repent. One day I will repent, may damn a man. But a belief would save him. A resolution to believe in Christ may only check the voice of conscience, but a belief would save. Your resolutions are of no use whatever, like drafts from Aldgate Pump, and I'll explain that in a moment. They are not worth thinking of. Oh, to have real practical obedience to Christ. For the Holy Spirit says, today. What Spurgeon's talking about is putting into play that passion on the inside and allowing it to play out in how we spend our time, what we do, what we care about, who we shower our affections upon. And all of this comes together in a way in God's power that makes individuals and communities of believers fruitful. But when he's talking about resolutions being like drafts from Aldgate Pump, he doesn't, doesn't explain it in his sermon because he was preaching when it was contemporary, and so I had to look it up. Aldgate Pump was apparently a very delicious source of water in London until not that long before the sermon when they realized that the reason that it tasted so delicious is because of the mineral deposits that were coming out of the nearby cemetery into the water supply. It was death that made the water taste good. It tasted wholesome. I ain't smoking anymore. But it was death. So, rather than being satisfied with what I've done, what I'm going to do because I've done it before and I've been successful, and the death that that brings, I, I want to take that life where God's given me a passion and, and allowed me to repent of the past and live in who he wants me to be. And I got to do that today. And so do you. 
So putting it off, I mean, New Year's tomorrow, right? But why put anything off till tomorrow? What do we have that we can deal with today? Well, the first thing, I just want to do, do kind of a, a summary here. If, if, we, if we look at that, does anybody remember what the, the loopy symbol and, and those? Constantly pray. Thank you. I've been reading education theory, and it says having to remember something like that, even if you've got hints, helps it stick. We'll see. What's the next one? Well, that, that, the G, I bet you can figure that one out. Made worthy of God's calling. Okay, who makes us worthy of God's calling? God does. <laughs> what do we pray for? One of the things we pray for is that we and, and the rest of us would be worthy of God's calling. Okay, now I finally get to verse 12. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole point of this exercise is not for Daniel to be the healthiest. The point of this exercise is for Daniel to be the guy who survived Babylonian brainwashing and retained relationship with God. Who's glorified in that? Well, Daniel looks pretty good. But God is ultimately the one who gets the glory in that story because God made those things happen. And the other Daniel stories perhaps make it even more clear that it's God intervening. And if you and I were to live in that awareness that God continues today to interject his power and his will into lives of those who will follow him, yeah, it might, it might make us look good for his sake, but ultimately, he'll get the credit, and I think that's what we're after. So let's, let's throw up that last. This is a much tougher quiz. Little download button. What makes us fruitful? God's power makes us fruitful. How does he do that? Two ways. The first is inner. What is it? Our desire for what? For goodness. Whose goodness? Am I looking good? Am I doing what's going to please you? No, God's idea of goodness. And then finally, what, what action comes out of that? Faithful deeds. Faithful to whom? Faithful to the God of Daniel. Faithful to the Father of Jesus Christ. Faithful to the one who sent the Holy Spirit so that we don't do this on our own accord and who put us by that Spirit into a community where we can encourage one another so that when I'm having a great day and you're having a poor day on this whole goodness thing, instead of judging you, I get to encourage you because it's not because I'm awesome. It's because
because the power of the Spirit is giving me joy, and I know where you can get it too. Let me pray as the worship team comes up. God, I thank you that we don't have a 9.2% chance of being accepted by you. That my grade on that test doesn't matter because I get to use the results on Jesus' test. And I pray that in the power that you used to raise him from the dead, that we would live in a way that would change everything. And I ask that you would allow us as a community to be a place where people can be encouraged, not only in desiring the goodness that you have for us, but allowing that goodness to be expressed in faithful deeds. In Christ's name, amen.